BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, American Hauntings listeners. It's Troy Taylor here. Uh, with one last bonus episode before we officially kick off season eight of the podcast. You probably heard the trailer for it earlier this week. If you didn't, go listen to it. Let us know what you think of what we have coming up this year. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us through our American Hauntings Haunt Line by texting us at 217-791-7859. If you've got questions or comments or just want to say hi, Get in touch at that number, and we'll be interacting with everyone again as Season 8 gets going with our first episode next week. Now, for this bonus episode, I wanted to introduce you to my brand new book, Until Death Do Us Part, which comes out on February 10th at our Dead of Winter event that we have at the Mineral Springs in Alton. And after that, it'll be available online starting Monday, February 12th. You may have seen the new book advertised on some of our social media, but it's probably uh, best described as an American history. Okay, you know what? It's best described as an anti-Valentine's Day book, but uh, (laughs) here we go. Uh, But we're going to call it an American history of love, murder, and insanity with stories of murderous couples, violent ends, lonely hearts killers, monsters, ghosts, black widows, bluebeards, obsessed stalkers, meat cleaver waving mad women and a lot more. I mean, that that story alone is, is worth the price of admission. Anyway, in this episode, I wanted to introduce you to a couple that isn't in the book. So they're not in the book, but it, it, it could have been in the book if it wasn't already the, and I'm not kidding here, biggest book I've ever written. But anyway, here's the story. A story called The Story of the Wife Who Lost Her Head. Early on the morning of January 2nd, 1946, two motorists were driving up a steep hill in the San Bernardino Mountains of California. They'd already climbed 3,000 feet over the last four miles and their engine was overheating. They found a wide turnoff and stopped to refill the car's radiator with water. Steam rolled out from under the hood as they rolled to a stop. The driver popped the hood and carefully opened the radiator with a handkerchief wrapped around his hand. He took a large jug from the back seat and placed it on the ground in front of the car. He just needed to wait a bit for the motor to cool down. The passenger had opened his door and stepped out to stretch his legs. He walked over to the road's edge and looked out over the valley below, admiring the view. 
And then he looked down into the ravine directly below him where he got another breathtaking view. A green and white quilt tied up with rope. The bare legs of a woman were protruding from it. Well, as soon as their automobile had cooled down, the men rushed to the nearest place they could find and called the police. The sheriff, the coroner, and eight deputies from San Bernardino County's Sheriff's Department were on the scene within the hour. With climbing equipment, they entered the ravine and retrieved a woman's body. Well, part of a body. Her torso, legs, and arms were attached, but her head and her hands were missing. Someone had removed them with a saw. Well, the gruesome discovery was just the start of a bizarre series of events that included an unlikely suspect, a confession made and then retracted, a claim of insanity, spirit voices, and the road to the gas chamber. Once the body was pulled up from the ravine by sheriff's deputies, the coroner was able to take a closer look at the remains. There was a bullet hole almost precisely in the middle of the woman's chest. Another one was found on her left side, just below the armpit. The woman was nude, so the investigators knew that, unless she'd colored it, she would have had red hair if her head had been present. Besides an old scar on the left side of her leg, the only other identifying feature on the body were bunions on her feet that were so severe they would have required medical treatment in the past. Her age was estimated to be around 35. The killer, or whoever had dumped the woman's body, had left little evidence behind. There were a few prints at the turnout suggesting a car had been parked there, The woman's body had been carried from the car to the cliff and then she had been thrown into the ravine. And it had happened within the last 24 hours. But the location of the body did offer one clue. The killer wasn't from the area. Anyone who lived nearby would have known plenty of places to hide a body in the area other than on the side of a busy highway. Well, the story of the headless woman was splashed across the front pages of area newspapers later that day. Radio stations broke into their regular broadcasting to inform listeners of the horrific discovery. Within a few hours, the sheriff's department was deluged with hundreds of telephone calls for people asking for more details or requesting to see the body. By the following morning, tips, calls, and inquiries had come in from all over the western United States. Now, many of the calls were serious, others were from the morbidly curious, but there was one man who didn't call, a man whose wife was missing. His name was Arthur Eggers. He was a 52-year-old clerk who worked at the Temple City substation of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The shy, unassuming man with gold-rimmed glasses and a receding hairline decided he'd better tell someone he hadn't seen his wife for the last three days. All this fuss about a woman's body being found reminded him that the police likely ought to know. Or so he told the officer who took his report. Arthur's wife, Dorothy Eggers, was a 42-year-old vivacious redhead. She was loud, fun-loving, and 
restless. She dominated her small, quiet husband. The cops who'd worked with Arthur for the past 14 years knew the Eggers had a difficult marriage. Some of the men felt sorry for Arthur, while others figured that Arthur had bitten off more than he could chew when he'd married Dorothy in the first place. Arthur speculated that his wife had run off with another man when he filed the report. He said he'd last seen her on December 29th. Well, filing that report turned out to be Arthur's big mistake. As part of the investigation into the identity of the woman found alongside the road, the San Bernardino Sheriff sent out a bulletin to ask law enforcement officers throughout the region to check their missing persons files for any of the features that matched the body they'd found. Despite her missing head, the coroner measured the woman from her shoulders to her feet and estimated her height to be between 5 foot 7 and 5 foot 8 inches tall. When deputies at Temple City received the bulletin, they checked their files. Well, the only missing person that was even close to matching the description of the dead woman was Dorothy Eggers. But there was a problem. Arthur had claimed on the report that his wife was only five foot two inches tall. Now, the deputies who were friendly with Arthur and Dorothy knew this wasn't correct. Some of them had danced with Dorothy at department social functions, and they knew she was taller than that, at least as tall as the dead woman. Well, they politely asked Arthur if he thought his wife might be the identified woman in San Bernardino. Well, Arthur scratched his chin. Yeah, I thought of that. That's why I filed the official report, for the record. I went over there last night and took a look at her, though, but it isn't Dorothy, thank God. Well, it didn't take long for them to discover that Arthur was lying. When Arthur did go to the San Bernardino coroner's office, he never actually looked at the body. He just stood around for a few minutes and then left. The mistake about Dorothy's height and his lie about seeing her body raised some suspicions, and detectives had no choice but to start a secret investigation of their co-worker. Arthur was treated as he'd always been in the office. Meanwhile, they began digging into what turned out to be the couple's very complicated private life. Investigators learned from her friends that Dorothy had grown tired of her husband of 18 years. Arthur was boring, mousy, and quiet. Dorothy wanted excitement, and she found it by running around with other men. She didn't even make any effort to hide her affairs from Arthur. They also learned that Dorothy hadn't been seen since December 29th, which Arthur agreed was the last day he'd seen her too. Family and friends also confirmed that Dorothy was 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighed around 145 pounds, and had recently had surgery on one of her bunions. She'd also recently received a local chiropractor's treatment for a spinal condition. Both doctors were called in and both identified the headless woman as Dorothy Eggers. And then the case, well, got even worse for Arthur. On January 19th, a new deputy at the Temple City substation told his colleagues that he'd recently bought a 1940 Plymouth sedan from Arthur Eggers for $800. Unknown to that new deputy, but known to the other cops at the station, it was Dorothy's car, not Arthur's. When the title was transferred to the new owner at the courthouse, Arthur told the deputy that his wife was outside in his sedan. 
but the deputy later recalled the woman was much younger and much thinner than Dorothy. It turned out to be the couple's 19-year-old niece, Marie. She lived with the Eggers, along with her younger sister, Lorraine. When the Plymouth was examined, the police found the trunk had recently been cleaned, but not well enough. They found traces of type A blood, surprise, the same blood type as Dorothy's, a search of the gun records showed that Arthur owned a 38 caliber revolver, the same caliber of bullet that had killed the unidentified woman. Detectives searched his house when Arthur was at work and found more type A blood stains in the couple's bathroom. Arthur was not exactly a criminal genius, which is ironic considering his father was the former sheriff of San Francisco County. Arthur was finally arrested on January 22nd on suspicion of murder. Over the next five days, he was questioned repeatedly about Dorothy and the dead woman found in the mountains. Arthur confessed to forging Dorothy's signature on the title to sell the car, but he still denied killing his wife. He also admitted that he gave away all her clothing to charity, but said he only did it because he assumed, well, she wasn't coming back. It was also discovered that he sold his wife's engagement and wedding rings on January 4th using a fake name and address. Arthur maintained he did these things because Dorothy had run away with another man and he was angry. He was taken to see the headless body and grudgingly admitted that it might be his wife. Deputies noted that he displayed no emotion as he looked at the headless corpse and was surprisingly calm when talking with them. Well... I'd say that was her. I'll claim the body, he shrugged. When asked why he didn't say this the first time he claimed to see the body, he had an excuse for his actions. Well, I lied for the benefit of my wife's aged mother, he said. I wanted to put her mind at ease. Arthur had his own theory about the murder. He was sure that she'd been murdered by one of her lovers. I wouldn't hurt a hair on her head, he told deputies. I wouldn't kill her. I wanted her to raise the children. Arthur was talking about his nieces, but after hearing their uncle's connections to the murder, Marie wanted nothing else to do with him. She even confronted him in his holding cell about the green and white quilt that had been wrapped around her aunt's body. In front of the detective, she announced the quilt had not only been on her bed, but that she'd also seen it on Arthur and Dorothy's bed. That girl is lying, Arthur snapped. Well, he continued to be held in jail on charges of grand theft related to the fraudulent sale of his wife's car. It was the only way the authorities could hang on to him without a murder confession. For four hours on January 27th, Arthur was given a polygraph test, but he was too nervous and too jumpy to give detectives anything other than inconclusive results. Well, he continued to plead innocent until a retired deputy named Robert Jones came to see him. The two had worked together for a long time, and Arthur respected him. Jones told him he knew he was guilty, but he wanted to help him. Get this off your chest and lay it on the line, he said to Arthur. And the other man sighed heavily. Okay, Bob, I did it. I'll tell you anything you want to know. In his confession, Arthur told detectives that he returned home from work around 1 a.m. on December 30th. As he approached, he heard the front door slam and saw a man leave the house, walking quickly away. 
Suspicious, Arthur went into the house through the back door, turned on the lights, and found his wife naked in their bedroom. She was still on the bed, where she had obviously been having sex with the man who just left. Arthur claimed that his wife told him she was going to leave him and run away with the other man. I'd suspected her for a number of years, he said, and I started to boil over. Dorothy called him names, he told detectives, and asked him what he was going to do about it. He grabbed a pistol from the dresser and started chasing after the man he'd seen leave. But Dorothy jumped up from the bed and grabbed him before he could leave the room. They began struggling over the gun and the fight spilled over to the bathroom where they both slipped and fell to the floor. And when they did, the gun accidentally went off. Arthur then explained he tried to cover up the crime by putting Dorothy's corpse in the bathtub. He then dismembered her with a portable electric saw, wrapped her in a quilt, loaded her in his trunk, cleaned up the mess, and drove out to the dump in the ravine off State Route 18. No matter what Dorothy had done, Arthur insisted he still loved her. I'm sorry, he sobbed. I didn't mean to kill her. I'll always love her. On the morning after his confession, Arthur led investigators up to the mountain road to where he dumped the body. Newspaper reporters followed close behind and snapped dramatic photos of the little man showing how he'd thrown his wife's headless body into the ravine. He also drew a map that directed them to where he tossed the gun and the saw. The report about the examination of the saw was a gruesome one, describing a fatty, greasy substance and human blood on the blade. There were also numerous bits of tissue, bone, and fatty debris stuck in the saw's teeth. One large fragment of human bone was also forcibly wedged into part of it. Test bullets fired from the gun matched the bullets found in the body. Since he'd been arrested, Arthur had continually lied to the police. When he finally confessed, he kept lying, trying to make himself seem less guilty, if that was possible. His story of where he concealed Dorothy's head and hands, well, that changed frequently. And he seemed to relish keeping investigators guessing about where they might be found. After detectives and 400 Boy Scouts spent several hours searching for the head and hands through brush about 20 miles from where Dorothy's body was dumped, Arthur changed his story again. Well, it's almost too horrifying to tell, but here's the truth. He grinned. I burned Dorothy's head and hands in the incinerator at home. However, when investigators went to his house and collected ashes for testing, they found no bones and no teeth. Arthur knew that, as the detectives did. Teeth could withstand fire, so he came up with a new story. Dorothy had plastic dentures. I guess they must have melted completely, he shrugged. As they sifted through the ashes looking for charred bones, detectives asked Arthur where he'd burned the body parts. Why, in the morning, of course. It's against the law to burn anything at night. (laughs) Captain Gordon Bowers, the sheriff's department's top homicide investigator, was fed up with Arthur. He told reporters, He's lied so much that we are going to get his story straight once and for all. He's told some truths, but most of his details are self-preserving lies in his attempt to escape a first-degree murder charge. He's trying to show there was no premeditation on his part. When asked about the integrity of Arthur's confession, Captain Bowers told the press that his story, like most of Arthur's story, was mostly fiction. If the slaying took place as Egger said it did, that meant the couple's adopted children and a rumor slept through the night in the shooting in the small bungalow. 
A man named Lester Loomis rented a bedroom from the couple, and he didn't hear anything that night, and neither did the Eggers' two nieces. Even though Arthur had confessed and his story was filled with holes and more holes and filled with things that contradicted with the facts the detectives had, and he offered a not guilty plea and a not guilty by reason of insanity plea at his preliminary hearing. Now, this dual plea was not unknown in California, but it was an odd one to make. It was sort of like saying, hey, I didn't do it, but if I did, well, I was crazy at the time. Well, by late February, Arthur had changed his story again. He hadn't killed his wife, and the body found in the mountains wasn't even Dorothy. She was still alive and had faked her death and disappeared to frame him. Well, to keep this story going, Arthur refused to pay the funeral expenses for the dead woman from the ravine. She wasn't related to him, he claimed. Even though he was ducking funeral bills, Arthur did manage to do something right after his arrest. He hired an aggressive defense attorney. James Sterrett was a chubby little man who wore loud ties and had a mop of curly hair. During his client's grand jury indictment, Sterrett went after the prosecution with bold claims, arguing the confession was inadmissible because it was hearsay. It hadn't been put into writing. He also condemned the indictment itself, which failed to mention that Dorothy was even missing. That body may be the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow for all this transcript shows, Sterrett quipped. When Judge William McKay denied his motion to block the indictment, Sterrett appealed to a higher court. He argued that Dorothy was not missing, and without a head and hands to identify her conclusively, the state had no case. Well, Sterrett failed with the higher court too, but it did delay Arthur's trial until May 1946. But Sterrett had another trick up his sleeve. Judge McKay accepted his motion to set aside Arthur's confession because he said the police had gone too far in their tactics to get it. His ruling now cast doubts on its inadmissibility at trial. Without the confession, the police had to rely on forensic evidence. When all put together, though, it seemed overwhelming. There was the blood type match from the trunk and the bathroom, the ballistic comparison with Arthur's gun, the samples found in the saw, the green and white quilt found wrapped around the body, hair from the body that matched that found in Dorothy's hairbrush, and the positive identifications from her doctor and her chiropractor. But remember, there was no DNA evidence in those days. There was no way to conclusively say that the body belonged to Dorothy without a head and fingerprints. Was it likely it did? Well, of course. All it took was for a good defense attorney, though, to raise reasonable doubt, and the trial could be over. The murder trial of Arthur Eggers began on May 6th, with the prosecution approving potential jurors based on how they felt about the death penalty. Well, as he listened to this, Arthur flinched. Reporters noted his anxiety. The state's case, heard in the courtroom of Judge Clement Nye, was as strong as predicted. Forensic evidence was offered efficiently and effectively to the jurors, and Dorothy's nieces became primary witnesses. Marie testified about how Arthur had made her practice signing Dorothy's name so she could transfer the title to her car to that deputy. She also identified the quilt wrapped around the corpse as one that had been on her bed the year before. Lester Loomis, the Eggers' boarder, was called to the stand and denied that he was ever intimate with Dorothy, but testified that Arthur told him he had looked at the body from the ravine and told him it wasn't his wife. Finally, a neighbor testified she'd seen Arthur vigorously cleaning the trunk of his car on January 3rd. 
Well, during the defense's opening argument, Sterrett condemned Dorothy as a harlot who had violated the sanctity of the Eggers' home and said that she'd been shot by accident during an argument. He told the jury, Our evidence will prove that Mrs. Eggers was a domineering, forceful woman who was not averse to attending dances alone and picking up strange men. For a long time, Eggers heard rumors about his wife's unfaithfulness. When he saw it with his own eyes, the truth of these rumors, there was a blinding flash in his mind, and he grabbed a gun to defend the sanctity of his home. In the struggle, Mrs. Eggers, who was strong physically, was accidentally shot. But Stair did make it clear that the woman's torso found in the mountains, yeah, that wasn't Dorothy Eggers. He announced he would call a witness whose testimony would exonerate Arthur as the one who dumped the unknown woman in the ravine. While his attorney was outlining his case, Arthur sat in his chair with his eyes closed, giving the impression he was dozing off. Uh, with little evidence and no experts to put on the stand, the defense's star witness was Arthur Eggers. But Starrett knew that if there was anyone who convinced the jury his client was crazy, he yeah, was his client himself. Starrett guided him in his testimony, telling the jury that his marriage had been a happy one until one or two years ago. Around that time, Dorothy told him she was getting the, quote, change of life, and that she'd been challenging to get along with ever since. He heard rumors that she'd been going to dances whenever he worked late, and that she was picking up men there. Arthur said he ignored the rumors because he trusted her. But boy, did he turn out to be wrong, he added. Just before Dorothy's disappearance, the couple argued about Christmas presents. She ridiculed him for not getting something for their boarder, Lester, and called Arthur a cheapskate. Starrett then steered him toward the night in question. Arthur said he was returning home from work in the early morning hours of Sunday, December 30th, when he heard a door slam saw a tall man run off down the street. I went into the house and I found my wife in the bedroom, nude, he told the jury. I told her I was going to stop such goings on and I got my gun from the dresser drawer. Dorothy grabbed me and we struggled in the bedroom. She pushed me into the bathroom and we both fell down. The gun went off. The next thing I knew, I was crying and I heard these voices. According to Arthur, he was sitting on the toilet seat, crying and scared, and then he went outside to his car and got inside. As soon as he started the engine, mysterious voices began whispering to him. She's in the back. She's in the back. He started driving, and he kept driving as the voices continued to call to him. Finally, he stopped the car and looked in the trunk, but it was empty. I thought it was all a bad dream, but when I went back to the house, Dorothy wasn't there, he testified. This way, Arthur had two options. One, his wife wasn't dead and had fled the house while he was out. Or two, that he killed her and dumped her body. But he was so crazy, he didn't even know he'd done it. Did you intend to harm your wife? Starrett asked him. Eggers jumped to his feet and raised his hand as if taking an oath. No, he righteously declared, as God is my judge. I never had any thought of killing my wife. I loved her. Do you know where she is today? Arthur appeared to be deep in thought. Sometimes I think she's dead. Sometimes I think she's alive and laughing at my predicament. But the body I saw in San Bernardino, that was not my Dorothy. After the prosecution finished with Arthur, Starrett called this surprise witness, who testified that someone else threw the body into the ravine. Lloyd Cuthbert explained to the jury that he came to the assistance of an unidentified man with bloody hands changing a tire near where the body was found on the night in question. 
While the courtroom buzzed with excitement, the prosecutor called his own surprise witness, the man with the bloody hands. Former U.S. Marine Fred Matuski testified that, yeah, he'd been changing his tire along the highway and his hands were bloody. He was on his honeymoon following a wedding four hours earlier, and he cut his hands while removing the traditional tin cans that were tied to the back of his and his wife's just-married car. Well, after that blunder, James Sterrett rested his case. The jury's verdict of guilty came as no surprise to anyone in the courtroom but Arthur Eggers. He stood blinking as the verdict was read, but showed no other emotion at first. When it was finished, though, he cried out to his attorney, How could they? It wasn't Dorothy's body. I know it isn't Dorothy's body. This is absolutely unfair. <laughs> Although the jury had rendered a guilty verdict, a legal snag occurred when the foreman sent a note to the judge and asked if the sentence could be set as life without parole. Even though a first-degree murder charge always meant the death penalty at the time, the jury just didn't want to send Arthur to the gas chamber. But the judge said that wasn't possible. He then ordered them to decide on the defendant's sanity. Before that hearing could begin, though, one of the jurors stated she had a closed mind on the sanity question, and the foreman told the judge that if the same jury were retained for that question, it would be a hung jury. Judge Nye dismissed the jury and was forced to impanel a new one. It was a huge blow to the defense since a new jury wouldn't have the experience of witnessing Arthur's bizarre annex in the courtroom and on the stand. Sterrett attacked this situation and called for a mistrial, which was overruled. On June 4th, Arthur was back in the newspapers and calling attention to himself by formally resigning from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, as if he needed to resign. Anyway, Arthur's sanity hearing began one week later. It lasted for two weeks and three psychiatrists testified he was sane. Arthur went on the stand to speak for himself. Do you think you're sane? His attorney asked him. Of course I'm sane, Arthur shouted. One of Arthur's sisters, Etta, gave jurors the impression that insanity ran in their family. Their father, Frederick Eggers, who had been the sheriff of San Francisco County, had been convinced that Governor Friend Richardson, who was dead at the time, was about to appoint him as warden of San Quentin. These hallucinations went on until their father also passed away. When Arthur heard this testimony about his father, he sprang to his feet, pointed a finger at the sky, and yelled, Let his spirit rest! After he was ordered to sit down and be quiet, Etta added that her brother had suffered several falls as a child, one of them leaving him unconscious for seven or eight hours. She implied that brain damage had been caused to making Arthur act strangely and kill his wife. But the new jury didn't buy it. On June 29th, they decided that Arthur was perfectly sane when he murdered Dorothy and dismembered her body. Of course, his only reply to the verdict was, well, yeah, that's still not her body, he blurted out. Someday, somewhere, she'll show up and make fools of the prosecutor. She's probably waiting to hear what happens to me. But that was never going to happen. One month later, what was left of Dorothy was buried in Valhalla Cemetery in North Hollywood, and Arthur was on his way to the gas chamber. Over the next two years, Arthur's new attorney, Berwyn Rice, tried everything to postpone the inevitable. He made motions, filed appeals, even begged Governor Earl Warren for a last-minute stay of execution. But it was denied. On Friday, October 15, 1948, Arthur was strapped into the steel chair inside San Quentin's gas chamber, and 15 minutes later, he was dead. And just as a side note to this story, to this day... 
Dorothy Egger's head and hands have never been found. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you at our annual Dead of Winter food drive at the Mineral Springs in Alton on February 10th, where you can snag one of the first copies of my new book, Until Death Do Us Part. And before that, stay tuned for the first episode of Season 8, coming on January 30th, kicking off a full season of Home. So, so long, farewell, and see you later. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc